Uh, I don't even want to ask how you're doing because I think I know. Well, I'm doing the same as usual. <laughs> Fine. Fine. With the caveat that my computer... Hates you. Hates me. My computer hates podcasting. It does. Or at least the gerbils inside of your computer. Not enough. What is it? Chow? Is that like gerbil chow? Is that what they eat? Kibble. Kibble? Yeah, you need an upgrade. Upgrade to maybe the high protein version. Get those wheels cranking a little bit faster. Uh, anyway, we're going to dive right in. Uh, both Chris and I are super excited today to have Dr. Rich Burbieskis on the show. He is a professor of anthropology, ecology, and evolutionary biology over at Yale, and his research involves the evolutionary biology and endocrinology of human and comparative life histories, reproduction, aging, and metabolism. He has conducted fieldwork in a lot of places, including Paraguay among the Aceh, as well as populations in Venezuela, Japan, and Ecuador, and the United States. And he has been collaborating on the Schwar Health and Life History Project. And we've had a number of Schwar folks on this show already. So that is something that our regular listeners will be extremely uh, familiar with at this point. And he has a large body of work that we could talk about and probably do an entire season of nothing but Rick's work. But fortunately, he wrote some books. So fortunately. (laughs) Uh, And the one that we're going to focus on today is called How Men Age, What Evolution Reveals About Male Health and Mortality. And this came out in 2016 and was the winner of the W.W. Howells Prize for Best Book in Biological Anthropology by the American Anthropological Association. Rick, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to see both of you. I'm glad you're, both of you are watching. Oh, we're, I mean, as people, we're doing better than Chris's computer. But that, that's a low <laughs> bar, honestly. It is a low bar. I don't have great tech. I, we started podcasting on a dream and a iPad and we still have the dream and the iPad's broken and um, you know but anyway how are you I'm doing well doing well love the podcast you guys are doing great work and yeah so I'm here and just warn you I have my cat Benny here he's my study buddy and occasionally he butts in literally so he butts in that's it's his, like the cat uh, butt on display because my cats have done that we have, many times on have, this podcast we have, yeah we have cat butt with sword guest appearances frequently uh, if i start to talk and i kind of go oh, i like this it's because he's putting his claws ah, into some part of my body right. and he wants attention so uh anyway don't want to sound overly excited, even though I am excited to be here and happy to be here. There's something about cats that defy physics, that they are somehow able to, like, <laughs> instantaneously gain mass and density once mm-hmm. they get into your Absolutely. lap. And I don't think that has That's been right. studied properly at this point. I agree. Totally agree. Well, we always like to start off to find out, you know, we, the sausage of science is about how the science is made and what goes into it. But we want to start off with how the scientist is made and what goes into the scientist. So... We'd love to hear about your background. We read a little bit, you know, your bio says you double majored in anthropology and psychology. And as I said in the note, it gives us some insights into your writing. For me in particular, I see some some influences there. You bring both perspectives to bear, which I appreciate. But I'm curious as to what led you onto this road of becoming an anthropologist. And your mid or senior career, you were recently an associate provost, I believe. So where does that place you? Yes, and, and tell us what that career has been like, if you don't mind. That's a lot. To, that's a lot. Tell to cover. It, start with the um, cooling of the earth. Well, originally, and then okay, the the earth cooled, and then Pangaea broke up, and then I popped up. Someone after that. I'm a native Angelino. Come from a Mexican American family, first gen. My parents were always very big into education. Education was how you went forward in the world. 
born and bred in South Central LA and really started out as a non-traditional student, working in a supermarket, driving forklifts, commuting back and forth to Long Beach State, go 49ers, and um, after a couple of years managed to transfer to UCLA. And even though I grew up my whole life in LA, until I was about 18, 19, I had never been to Westwood, ever. And it just opened a whole new world for me. While I was there, I always had an interest in biology. But psychology and the brain kind of took hold on me. To be quite honest, I liked studying the brain for two reasons. One was it was super cool and interesting. And the other is it just made you sound smart. <laughs> it was like a patch on my imposter syndrome. You know, if you say medulla oblongata, your IQ goes up like 10 points right, to whoever you're talking to. So I have to be transparent because there was that. Minus corpus um, callosum. Exactly. You know exactly what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. And while I was there, I had some wonderful mentors. I don't know what I did in a past life. I don't know what happened, but somehow paths crossed with some wonderful mentors, some of which got me started in a neuroendocrinology lab. But the one who really transformed my life was a wonderful, wonderful professor named Nadine Peacock. And Nadine was a professor at UCLA at the time. She's now at uh, University of Illinois, Chicago. But at the time, and this is a long story, but I pestered her enough during office hours where she was willing to spend time with me. Now, let me back up a little bit. When I took her course, she taught a course called something like Human Behavior and Evolution. And I had no idea anthropology got into these issues. And she did everything that just grabbed me. It was super cool science the brain, hormones, and field research. At the time, she had just come out of doing field research with the Achuri Project between Harvard and UCLA, and I was just gripped. I said, I want in, this is so cool. The other issue I should note is that despite being in college for about four years by that time, she was the only person of color I'd ever had as a professor. And when she walked in, I think it shocked me in a good way, and she was just, so brilliant, 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 and nice. And I was just, if everybody in, in your field is like this, then I have no doubt what I want to do with my life. Which of course they are. Of course, absolutely. And I'm not joking. I think in human evolution biology, I think we are the nicest people in the world. You know, not to disparage my colleagues, but I'm sorry, we are special. <laughs> and that includes both of you. It's, just, <laughs> it's a great scientific community. So after working in Nadine's lab, I asked her, you know, if there was any work to be done in her lab and I was lucky again in that she asked me, can you do radio immunoassay? And I said, I don't think I can spell it. And she said, well, I need somebody who has experience. And I said, yeah, I, I get it. And then one day she asked me during one of the office hours that I was in her office, she asked me, uh, are you still interested? I said, of course. Well, she had just found out that she was pregnant with her first child who was now kind of like in his mid twenties. I think he's pushing 30 by now. And she couldn't work with radioactive isotopes. So lucky for her, for me, she was desperate. <laughs> and so she said, can you work in my lab? You know, I'll get you training. I said, absolutely. And that launched me on this entire career. After that, went to Harvard and worked with Peter Ellison, who again, I don't know what I did in a past life, but I kept stumbling into the arms of these really fantastic people. Brilliant, fantastic mentors. And initially the plan was for me to do work on the Aturi project. But unfortunately at the time, Zaire, as it was called at the time, you'll notice this is a long time ago, countries have changed since then, right? 
it became untenable to work there because of the political situation and unfortunately because of the Civil War at the time. And so I was in search of a new project. Peter happened to run into Kim Hill at a meeting and said, I've got this guy, he's willing to get in the mud and try and do research, you know, will you uh, tolerate him? Fortunately for me, Kim said, yeah, sure. And so that's why I got started off my thesis project. That's my field research. And in terms of studying men, I didn't start thinking, oh my God, I'm going to study the life history of males. That's not how it started. I remember walking into Peter's office one day to ask him some question about female reproductive ecology, and he was telling me all the wonderful research he had done, and it was just mind-blowing and amazing. And just very casually, I said, well, what about the men? And he kind of went, uh-huh. And it wasn't that he wasn't interested. It was just there weren't that many people sort of engaged with that. You know, people like Ben Campbell, who's now at uh, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, he had done some amazing initial work, and, and I thought, well, there seems to be a lot of room to run mm -hmm. there. Initially, Peter was, you know, he was saying, well, I don't know what you're going to find because all the research shows that men aren't as uh, responsive to energetic constraints as women are in terms of fertility and reproductive function. And when I did my own lit search course, he was right. So I said, well, let's look at testosterone. That seems sort of an easy thing to do. We measure it all the time in the lab. So I'll just go down to the Ache, look at their testosterone levels and see what I find. And lo and behold, what was found was that there's a lot of variation in testosterone levels. And we knew that in American and European clinical studies, you know, tenfold range of variation. But this was kind of not the first time, but it was one of the few times. There had been some other work with the Kung about five, six years earlier showing that foragers were sort of on the lower end of the range of variation. But the big question is why? If you were to show these values to a clinical endocrinologist, they might say that, you know, there, there's something pathological going on here. But they seemed perfectly fine. They were having children. There wasn't anything that uh, pointed to sort of this widespread pathology. So I kind of thought, hmm, well, maybe there's something going on in terms of some response to ecological challenges. And so later on, about midpoint of my thesis, I have one of the few aha moments in my life. And it came from mopping the floor of my kitchen. At that time, my wife was working, and before she left the house to go off to work, she said, can you do something around here? Can you like at least mop the kitchen floor and put down the computer? And I said, yeah, 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 sure. So as I'm mopping the kitchen floor, as we do during our thesis, you know, it's always in the back burner. It's always churning, mm -hmm. right? It's always got that microprocessor doing the processing back here. And as I'm mopping the kitchen floor, my arms start to get sore. My, I'm starting to feel a little bit soreness. And I start thinking, well, what else does testosterone do? Because I was sort of stuck on fertility. And then I started to realize, well, wait a minute. Testosterone is really involved with anabolic functions and muscle. I wonder if that's important. And so finished mopping the floor and started doing some research. And lo and behold, testosterone, in many ways, is the way I see it, is more of a metabolic hormone than it is a sex hormone. Because if you give a male some dose of testosterone, it's very unlikely that you'll see him become hypersexual or hyperaggressive. But according to the literature, you would see a very acute and significant increase in their basal metabolic rate. And coming from the mindset of energetics and life history theory, I thought, hmm, I think I'm onto something here. And I just sort of ran with that in terms of thinking about how 
perhaps testosterone and the regulation of testosterone is an adaptive mechanism for managing the energetic costs of reproductive effort in males. And if you look at the literature in non-human animal models in lizards and deer and other vertebrates, fish, birds, everything points in that direction. And so I thought, well, you know, if every other organism is sort of responding in this way, then it's likely that we are too. And I have to interject this too, is that I thought, this seems too simple. Or I wonder if anybody else had thought about this. And so I did a really, really deep dive into the literature, and lo and behold, and this is a lesson to young researchers out there, because I've seen this a few times where someone says, aha, I found something. Well, you really should sort of look carefully. <laughs> and lo and behold, I think it was the 1957 issue, one of the issues, of the Egyptian Journal of Clinical Endocrinology or something like that. And this researcher had basically done and come to the same conclusion that I did based on metabolic rates and urinary measurements of testosterone. So I thought, well, this is science. I should replicate it with all due respect. But at the same time, there really wasn't much since then. So I kind of based my foundation of my career on how endocrine mechanisms, whether it's testosterone or leptin or whatever, are sort of engaged with the management of life history trade-offs, whether or not it's with muscle growth or anabolism or aging. That's what sort of pushed me off the dock and set me off on this journey. And uh, basically everything that I've done uh, since then, I've had a few little forays in other areas, but everything since then has sort of been built on that foundation, looking at life history trade-offs and how do we quantify them and how do we test them? Because like I tell my graduate students, just because it makes sense doesn't make it true. And then I started getting into aging because I noticed my beard <laughs> uh, starting to change colors. And I thought, well, you know, that's a missing piece. And again, there wasn't a whole lot out there in terms of an evolutionary perspective. And so that kind of nudge me in another direction. So I very much appreciate you mentioning the variation in testosterone. I'm teaching anthropology of sports this semester and we talk a good deal about testosterone and a lot of the myths and misconceptions around it. Mm -hmm. And one thing that always kind of blows students' minds is that there is this surprisingly wide range of variation mm -hmm. in normal functioning levels of testosterone because everyone has this idea mm -hmm. that like you have to be within this range or you won't have kids or you won't build muscle and you'll be terrible at every single sport you try, which, you know, mm, all, all this right. BS that just gets lumped in with testosterone. Yep. But yeah, we will, of course, want to focus on the book and the aging, but I wanted to put that out there because I appreciate it. And it's the yeah. kind of thing that I like talking about with my students. You start your book with this really relatable and touching story about your father. And mm. it hit me because my father is now knocking on the door of 70. And I've been seeing, you know, these changes in behavior, changes in how he moves and activity levels, what he's eating, all of these things. And so that hit me like a ton of bricks because I'm watching that happen, you know, basically as we speak now. And then you use that story to loop in different but related ones about an Aceh man and then one about a chimpanzee and, and you know, how they go through aging as well. And what can we conclude about male aging across cultures and even species. What can we gain from these cross-cultural and cross-special, I'm not sure if that's the right word, comparisons? Well, I think if we take a step back and think about age as a resource, as a reflection of a resource. So one of the things that is a foundation of life history theory is that you're commonly trying to juggle two primary resources, energy and time. And you can measure time 
both on the micro scale, if you're a human ecologist, in terms of how you spend your time during your day. Are you foraging? Are you taking care of children? Whatever it is you're doing. But also, each species has not a set lifespan. There are definitely guardrails on the lifespan of, of most species. Some live long, some live short. And in humans, the idea that human males, chimpanzees, mammals in general, have to deal with somatic changes that occur over time. There are some things you can do about it. You know, if you're a human, you can eat more salmon, more blueberries, your you know, antioxidants, whatever, hit the treadmill, buy a sports car, whatever. But it's still not going to stop you from hitting that mortality curve as it starts to take off right about the age of about 50, 55, and the slope starts to increase. Now, what I was trying to get at there was that regardless of ecology or lifestyle, or in this case, whether or not you're a member of the genus Pan or Homo, you're all faced with these same challenges. And I think the interesting question is, how do you deal with them? You can deal with them behaviorally, as in the case of chimpanzees or Aceh men, or my dad, you know, staying away from ladders. For those of you who haven't read my book, he fell off a ladder and anyway, read the book. <laughs> um, but that, you know, there should be, and it's, it's a reasonable prediction, and it's based on a lot of other comparative research that organisms should develop and evolve behavioral and physiological mechanisms to try to adjust to the changes with age. That was one of the reasons why I really wanted to make that point that despite this broad range of lifestyle and experiences, there is a common thread that runs through South Central LA where my dad and my family lived, the Kibali Forest and England where, where Darwin grew up. So that kind of launched us on this again as a foundation and then see, well, if we do see variation, uh, at least we have a foundation and a common starting point from which to draw from. So I wanted to dig in a little bit to some of the historical context of what you're doing, right? So, so you allude to this in the intro that it may have at one point been a little dicey to talk about sex differences and now you feel it's okay to wade in. And, you know, without sort of setting up a straw man, I'm kind of wondering what you were avoiding, what the reception was to the book and looking at sex differences and what we should continue to be cautious about or, or what is a valid direction for this type of research? Yeah, that's a great question. I would tweak your question a little bit and saying, I'm not really focused on sex differences. What I am looking at is I kind of look at, we're looking at the binary, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that's important to note is that despite the fact that we have more or less, because there are variants, a binary sort of karyotype of XX and XY, as I tell my students, you can have a very narrow range of genotypic variation, but you can have an extremely broad range of phenotypic expression. So how XY and XX kind of express themselves often doesn't fall in ways that you can, you can do things like compare sex differences. You can do it, but you have to be really nuanced and rigorous. I think that's what's really important. So that said, I mean, really, the way I kind of look at the challenges between reproduction that we find in females and reproduction that we find in males is that you're trying to manage energetics under different constraints. And in essence, you have two different strategies related to physiological energetics. I think in the past, there was a very simplistic notion of, for example, you know, Man the Hunter, the book that came out back in the late 50s, early 60s, because it was based on assumptions of things that make sense. That as we know, just because it makes sense doesn't make it true. 
I think what it was, and I, actually, I don't think, I'm pretty confident in this, that you know, a lot of early research was based on very explicit and implicit racist and sexist notions of how humans are and how they evolved. And aside from all the social baggage and injustices that came from that, it just produces, I don't want to say bad science because, and some of it's bad science, some of it's really bad science, but I think a lot of it was misinformed science because I still see it today where people kind of read something from 10 years ago and accept it as true. And I say, well, have you read the primary literature on that? Well, no. Well, you really should because now you are misinformed. And I think a lot of research based on aspects of male and female life histories were based on some very misplaced assumptions. And what I tried to do was say, okay, let's just start again, right? As a DIY person at home who destroys a lot of things, I always say, you know, before you start painting, you got to prep and prime and patch. You got to do the grunt work first, the stuff that's not fun. And in looking at just the basic energetics, that's what I was trying to do. But let's set aside Man the Hunter and let's set aside the arrows and the spears and the sort of romantic notions of hunter-gatherer life. Let's, let's start with some facts. And this is what I was sort of alluding to that, you know, there's a new generation of researchers. It sounds like we saved the world. We didn't. I think there was an emerging generation, several generations of researchers, such as Peter Allison, mm -hmm. who really started to question some assumptions that were made by earlier researchers. And it, a lot of times, like I said, it doesn't make them bad researchers. You have to work with what you have. But nevertheless, a lot of the information was misinformed. And so I think coming from that perspective, I think it puts some people at ease, but not always. I remember one time I, I missed out on a funding opportunity because someone said, I can't believe you're studying this macho BS and testosterone and aggression. And I said, you didn't read my proposal because that's exactly the opposite of what I'm arguing. Mm. But they already came in with these right. assumptions. And I think trying to step back from that and say, you know, before we get into something as complex as behavior and the brain, and there's some really cool research that goes on with that, you know, I'm a simple person. Let's back up a little bit and think about where the calories going. What is actually going on in terms of these easily defined variables like calories, like age, like mortality, things we can all agree upon. If you want to start talking about aggression and libido, that's wonderful. That's great. That's outside my pay grade. If you want to delve into that, bless you, because that is so damn complicated. Mm -hmm. But maybe future researchers can kind of use some of my research and the research of others to say, okay, well, we can account for a lot of the variation in something like testosterone in terms of energetics and ecology. And the leftover stuff kind of is in, sort of left open to interpretation and to study. I mean, John Wingfield did that with the challenge hypothesis, right? You know, a cool study where he kind of said, well, this much variation is accounted for by physiology. This much, we don't know. And I thought that was a very cool perspective. And I think once people really start reading my proposals, yes. as opposed to assuming what's actually in them, I think after we get out of the pool, and dry ourselves off, we can actually sit down, have a cocktail, and have a nice conversation poolside. This is going to be one of these things that, Rick, your timing in this interview is so great for what I'm teaching, actually, in, in class right now. And I'm literally <laughs> writing down some of your quotes to share with my students tomorrow morning. Awesome. Um, so, awesome. one, thank you. You've made my life easier without even, you know, planning it. But two, there's a project that I'm slowly working on getting off the ground that really does look at exactly what you're talking about as some of these early assumptions that some of it's made on bad science and some of it 
in many ways is based off of observations of one population which is then broadly applied to every population in all of human evolutionary history, which has always just made me stop and like, how, how can you do that? When you, when you look at humans today and you see how much variation there is in everything that we do and are, how can you take one population and say, that's it? They are a model for human evolution and therefore this is the basis for whatever sexist, racist trope that you want to perpetuate in society today. And so one, thank you for that. And I think it's a really important thing that we are still grappling with today. And because, you know, man, the hunter still lives on. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's still very much present. And every time I teach fundamentals, like my intro bioanth course, that's the idea my students come into class with. Like that's how they view mm -hmm. human evolution. So I want to bring it back to aging a little bit and, sure. and talk about some of the, you know, the gritty details. And one of those is oxidative stress. And this mm. is something that I know my uncle listens to the show and, and he is not a scientist. And so it's always good in my mind to break things down and, and what this means to, you know, everybody in the public. If you could tell us a bit about what oxidative stress is and what that means for both reproduction and for aging. I think that would be really helpful and, and you know, put a biological face on this aging thing for everybody. Sure, sure. So, you know, aging is a funny thing in that we all experience it, especially as we get older. It's hard to imagine getting older when you're 18, 19, and you know, things haven't started to fall apart yet. But actually quantifying aging and putting a number on it is tricky. I mean, you can talk about lifespan, but lifespan only gets you so far. You can talk about mortality curves, but you know, all these things are good demographic measures. But in terms of physiological measures, it's tough. You know, it's not unreasonable to say, you know, count the number of gray hairs on your head compared to 10 years ago. I mean, there are a lot of ways you can you sort of do this. One way you can do this is to look at a constant that everybody experiences that has a cost. And that one function, there are many, but one function is simply breathing. We are aerobic organisms. In order to survive, we incorporate oxygen into our metabolism, sort of the furnace or engine. Apologies to Herman Ponzer, you know, I'm going to be simplistic here. But, you know, it goes into the engine, and just like an engine, you need fuel and oxygen and sort of a spark. And it creates heat, and it creates energy, and allows you to do this. I'm kind of waving my hands or whatever it is you're doing during the day. But the other thing it creates are toxic byproducts. And that's a really interesting example of how, during evolution, you are faced with constraints. And one constraint is just a, it's, it's a constraint on the evolution of metabolism that these toxic byproducts are made in the same way that you start your car, stuff comes out the tailpipe. And you don't want to put your lips on the tailpipe. <laughs> it would make you really bad, make you very sick. Uh, but oxidative stress is the same way. It's the stuff that comes out of the tailpipe. Now your car deals with it by sort of expelling it out into the air. We don't have a tailpipe, at least not a tailpipe that works in that way. We have mechanisms to kind of clear the toxins out of our body. But before we clear those toxins out of our body, they're doing damage, right? And so oxidative stress results from the byproducts of incorporating oxygen, and those byproducts damage tissues, they damage cells, and they damage DNA. And one interesting way of sort of looking at this, uh, I show this to my class, is that you can actually increase your oxidative stress in many ways. One is to smoke. Right? If you're a smoker, you are creating more oxidative stress. And there are these really interesting pictures of these chimeras where you look at twins 
and one's a smoker and the other's not a smoker and the wrinkles and the things that you're associated with looking older, that's oxidative stress because that oxidative stress inhibits your ability to repair cells, repair tissue. And so you're left with those micro damages that accumulate and make you look more and more old as you age. So for your uncle, I would just say it's the stuff that comes out of the tailpipe. But luckily for us, we do have mechanisms to address those toxic byproducts, but they're not 100% efficient. And our hypothesis was that the more you engage in oxidative metabolism, the more oxidative stress you will create. Sort of like stepping on the accelerator of your car, you rev up the engine and more stuff comes out of the tailpipe. If you increase your metabolism, like if you are pregnant, then you are creating more toxic byproducts and you gotta do something about that. And sort of getting off men for a second, what we found in another study was that women who are energetically stressed exhibit a positive association between the number of pregnancies they had premenopausally with postmenopausal measures of oxidative stress. And it was one of the first times that it was actually quantified and actually evidenced the trade-off that you would predict between reproductive effort and aging because it's the oxidative stress that contributes to how fast you age. So let me play devil's advocate a little bit here just to tease out the next Please. question. My grandmother lived to 100 and she had one, two, three, four, like six or seven kids, all of whom except my mother died before her. So pretty high stress level from a variety of directions. And I had it in my head, I hope I have her genes. I want to live to 100. From reading your book, your partner, we all have opposite sex partners. My partner and I are same age, similar interest. Kara, I've met her, her partner, same thing. And, and from reading your book, your partner and you have similar interests, same age. But Rick, you, I, and Kara's husband are, are statistically likely to die younger than our partners. And I wonder why, you know, my grandmother with all her stress living longer than maybe I will. <laughs> Those are great questions. So, you know, I've had many people come up to me and say, well, my grandmother lived to 100 and, you know, she had 10 kids and whatever. And my response is twofold to that. One is on every regression, there's a residual and someone's got to be a residual. <laughs> so your grandmother sounded like an awesome residual. I'm sure she's never been called that. I hope she takes it as a compliment. But your grandmother is an awesome residual. She would look at you with complete mis <laughs> mystification. <laughs> but all kidding aside, the one thing that we also found, and this is without knowing where your grandmother grew up or her circumstances, lifestyle, is that we repeated this study in another population, an American population that was not energetically restricted. Mm -hmm. And we found no effect. This is in line with what you'd expect in life history theory in terms of in order to see a trade-off, a key resource has to be limited. Mm -hmm. If the resource is not limited, then you can afford to do mm -hmm. both, right? It's sort of like the silly example that I give with Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or something like that, where if you see them with a fancy car, you say, well, they must live in a small, humble home. Well, of course they don't. They can afford an expensive home and a nice car, right? It's only some schmuck like me that if I have some severe midlife crisis and buy a $200,000 Ferrari, you know, I'll end up in a very humble housing situation. So the trade-off, there has to be limitations to the resource. Mm -hmm. So with the American population, we didn't find an effect. And this is actually something that was written about by my good friend and collaborator, Grajna Jasienska, because this type of research has been going on for quite a while. There's all sorts of arguments. Well, I didn't find this. Well, I did. And on and on and on. 
And what she basically pointed out was that, well, you're not controlling for a key resource. And unless you do that, then of course you're not going to hmm. see a trade-off. And of course you're going to have this sort of potpourri of results. So start controlling for those resources and maybe it'll add some clarity. Now, for the second part of your question about why men tend to live shorter lives than women, the honest answer I have for you is I don't hmm. know. I have some ideas, but none of those ideas are supported by evidence yet, at least not clear evidence. The ideas that I can propose to you, that I can sort of put forward with some confidence is that the sex disparity, again, drawing on strictly XY and XX, is really, really, really invariant. I can't think of a single population where men live longer than women. I can't. And I'm thinking back to my mental Rolodex to the study I'm looking at, the, and I, I can't think of a single population. And it's common among mammals, whether or not you're looking at non-human primates, ungulates. Males tend to live shorter lives. Now, you know that there are sources of mortality that contribute to this disparity. One is the fact that in humans across populations, whether or not you're the Ache or a male living in Toronto, there's a big spike in mortality between the ages of 15 and 25. Dan Kruger at Michigan wrote some wonderful papers that more people should read, showing the disparity between males and females. And what he showed using American data is that during this age range, uh, males are about somewhere between two and a half to three times more likely to die than uh, females are between the ages of 15 and 25. That's a big difference. And there's some papers there, there's some papers out there that actually call it a public health uh, issue. And there, there's an argument to be made there because it, it's, it's ubiquitous. Among the Ache, you see the same big bump. Now, that's it. And a lot of that has to do with risky behavior. Mm -hmm. In my head, right? we're calling this the evil Knievel hypothesis. I got a scar on my knee to prove that. <laughs> because I, in one of my books, I explain how, you know, I tried to jump my neighbor's lawn using my brother's hand-me-down bike with an oatmeal crate and a flimsy piece of plywood and gashed my knee open because I thought I was invincible. Nothing could hurt me. And that's a kind of way of saying it. Basically, I had no sense, mm -hmm. right? Thought processes aren't very clear when you're that age. Now, you can say, oh, that's testosterone poisoning. That's just, but here's the thing, though, is that going back to testosterone variation, there is no big bump in testosterone in Ache men. Hmm. So you can say, well, it's the pubertal rise. Yeah, maybe so. But there's another paper by a guy named Josh Goldstein who showed that mortality bump in early age and the associated bump in testosterone, which is there in American males, may be an amplification due to more calories and I can afford to have higher testosterone because I'm this well-fed American male. But setting that aside, we're still left with lifespan. So you make it through the evil Knievel stage, you make it through your 40s and your 50s. You know, why is it that I'm likely to check out two and a half to three years earlier than my wife? It could be that the anabolic, the metabolic costs of testosterone draw resources away from maintenance and survivorship. Maybe, that's a, a reasonable hypothesis. There are a few studies, historical studies, where they compare the lifespan of eunuchs in Korea and in Europe and a couple other studies. And as you'd imagine, there's about a handful of studies, I'd say, I think about four, and two show a difference between the eunuchs and the intact males, and two do not. What are you going to do? So trying to tease out what's going on in males in terms of shorter lifespan is tough because there's also behavioral aspects. 
men don't go to the doctor. It's, it's this lack of sense sometimes, right? That's for public health researchers, behavioral social scientists to sort of tease out. I love out. doctors. Go all the time. I don't know. I, and I come at it from a different view of, yeah, I go to the doctor to have doctors ignore everything I tell them and well, take exactly. years to get things treated. So. Mm, exactly. We all bear our burden and yeah. So, you know, and to be honest, we don't know. My suspicion is that it's gonna be multifaceted, mm -hmm. super complicated. There are gonna be genetic components, there are gonna be epigenetic components, and someone's gonna to have to develop 20 million scripts of R to kind of <laughs> figure out the variables, you know, and that ain't gonna be me. You know, that's why I have graduate students who are much smarter than me, and hopefully they'll tease it apart, but it is a big, big question, one that you know, hopefully we'll tease apart. This is something that if we are ever able to be in person at conferences again sometime soon, I would love to sit down and get you a drink and talk about the role of immune function and estrogen as a metabolic yeah. hormone as well and what role that plays, especially among women are way understudied in this respect and having that as, as a comparison I think would be critical. Absolutely. But anyway, because this is something we could talk about forever. But one thing that Chris yeah. and I both very much enjoyed is the way you pepper in pop culture references in your book because Chris and I are big readers and watchers of various things. So I'm using that to get into what sorts of things are you reading, watching, or listening to right now, whether they be academic or non-academic? How do you spend some extra fun time? Well, in terms of films, uh, books, I'm grounded in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I am grounded in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Have either of you seen that? That one I've heard of, but I have not. Shame on you. You need to go see it. Okay. <laughs> but the thing is, is once is not enough. You need to see it at least two dozen times. It's one of those two cult dozen. films. Two anyway. start scheduling this out. <laughs> but one of the th reasons I like those two sort of works of, of science fiction is because, you know, they're considered sort of comedy mm -hmm. science fiction. But I, I look at them a little bit more is that they embrace in a really articulate way, in a fun way, capture the absurdity of science. Mm. One thing that draws me to science is that how every time I get a little bit too big for my britches and I think, oh, I understand this, I, I got this, you know, science and facts and nature gives me a swift kick in the rear and then runs off laughing, right? I find so much joy in that because there is an element of absurdity in what we study. And I, I mean that in a compliment way. I'm not saying that our science is absurd. What I'm saying is that when you think about your head, you know, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, however you want to count it, wet holes in our heads. That's not a good idea. <laughs> That's not a good idea, right? But yet, you know, it is what it is. And we started on the, on this trajectory and all of a sudden we've got all these organisms from primates and birds and other things that have wet holes in our heads. And we managed to get by and make offspring and, and do various things. So sort of absurd science fiction sort of gets my attention. The other thing is Johnny Come Lately is being really interested in music. <laughs> my wife's family is very, very musical. They are so talented. And every holiday we go over to their house and someone's playing the piano and playing beautiful guitar and singing. And I'm in the back kind of like, <laughs> you know, clapping my hands <laughs> off time. And one day I said, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, you know, I, I, I can do this, or at least I can try. So I started playing the guitar about 12, 13, 14 mm. years ago. And not only did I enjoy doing that, but I started to see and appreciate similarities and engagement between the sciences and the arts. Now, I've always liked the concept of science and the arts. So people like Steve Jobs from Apple would talk about the intersection of the humanities and science. And I always embraced that, I really loved that. I went to a conference in Spain many, many years ago, and there was a reception, 
But and you have to bear in mind this reception was in the dungeon of this Spanish castle, and they were playing whale music in the background. Mm. This sounds like the most amazing as they liquor. <laughs> I know as they liquored us up, and oh you know, gosh. and we're amazing hosts. But in addition to being in that setting with the whale songs going off, there was a parallel art show where they were taking micrographs from fossil finds, australopithecines and everything, and it was part of an art exhibit. And these micrographs were amazing. And the fact that you're looking at the cross-section of some find from Sturkfontein or something, it was information overload. Yeah. It was one of the, you know, on my deathbed, if someone says, what is your most you know, memories, I, that's one of the things that will probably spill out of my mouth. And so I think arts and science really need to be engaged, which is why I'm an anthropologist. Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by wonderfully talented and amazing researchers who do very creative things. I think science can be very creative too, but it, this is creative in a different way. And in some ways, like for example, talk about perfect timing, Kara. So tomorrow I'm giving a lecture to my class on basic endocrinology. And part of that lecture has to do with how there is a binary part to hormone production, and there's an analog wave part, right? So if you have a neuron and it fires, it either fires or it doesn't, that's either the off or on binary, but then it releases a pulse of hormones that go through your body in a pulse, and it turns into an analog signal. And so tomorrow, I am taking in one of my guitars to show them that on the string, I can either pluck it or not pluck it. Once I pluck it, that is the pulse, the GNRH switch. And then that string vibrates and it turns into an analog signal. Now, one thing about hormones is that sometimes I think there's too much emphasis on one hormone. They act in concert, sometimes in conflict, right? You know, sometimes one hormone did not get the email that the other one's doing this, right? And so it's messy. But sometimes they do act in concert. Sometimes they have to. And so that's where you get a chord. So if you strike these three strings at the right time, you may get some function that actually makes sense and is productive. So in ways like that, I think you can sort of meld the two because I think science without art is just very boring. And I think sometimes art without engagement with science, you know, they're missing out on the cool part of the absurdity of science, as I said earlier. So yeah, those are the things I'm kind of into these days. Uh, um, as, as someone who's been learning guitar for the last year during the pandemic, I love that, and I may have snuck in a, a metaphor of learning to play uh, sitting by the dock of the bay in the, in the book I just wrote, trying to understand uh, you know chord changes and, and, and stop thinking about them as yes. something that, yes. that you do to actually get better. Um, and I also want to say how much this book resonated with me, both because I'm wearing my stretchy pants today uh, to maintain my <laughs> my 34 waist as well. But because I, I turned 50 two days before my triplet boys turned 18 and went off to college, and they're all very, very wow. different in how much they manifest sort of androcentric behaviors for one of a better way. So, so the idea that there's a binary in sex is ridiculous. The analog of humanness is, is very apparent to me. You know, I've spent their whole lives in grad school and then in my career watching them and sort of thinking about these problems and now feeling myself as well. So, Rick, it's been it's awesome. been a pleasure. I can't yeah. I, I'm with Kara. I want to get together and talk more because we have so many more questions and so many things we could talk to you about. So we will we'll have to do all of the above and get you back on. What's in store for you next? 
Oh, goodness. We mentioned earlier that I had an administrative position a couple years ago, and it was a provostial position that kind of engaged with faculty diversity, and I still believe very strongly in that, that there's still a lot of implicit and explicit racism and sexism and marginalization of a lot of people who not only deserve to be given a chance in academia, but actually have so much to contribute, and we miss out on that. So I just stepped down from that position, so I'm kind of a recovering administrator, trying to get my sea legs back into academia. You know, at some point, you know, if we get out of lockdown and the world kind of writes itself, love to go back to the field. You mentioned earlier Schwar Project. I am one humble team member of many, many people who do lots of cool things. And I miss being around them. I miss the communities in the in in, in and around the Amazonian part of, of Ecuador and just, you know, the experience of being someplace different and learning and not being as confined. But that said, uh, there are a lot of questions out there. You guys raise a lot of questions like, mm-hmm, those are great questions. I have no clue. No clue. <laughs> but that's what's but, so great about um, science, right? I know. Exactly. If we knew everything, then what are we going to do? I appreciate those um, answers because that gives our listeners yeah. something to do. Absolutely. Just handing Absolutely. out the PhD dissertation topics left and right. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I can't tell you how many times I've told some graduate students, you really need to look at this. And they're kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. And lo and behold, 15 years later, they would come back and say, I should have studied that. "Mm -hmm." Rick, again, it's been an absolute delight. And I don't think there's ever enough time. And I I really hope that we can do this again and maybe in person at some point. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you. You guys are doing awesome work. Thank you.